Hi listeners, today's episode is all about controlling the direction of your life by controlling your mindset. What do you think is the greatest human skill? Not habit, but mindset and skill. That's a great question. I don't know if I got the, what the greatest, there's so many. It depends on what you want out of your life, right? Yeah. But I think the ability to manage your own mind and emotions is probably one of the single most important. And maybe the second is the ability to influence others because that's what makes you a leader. Mm. And hopefully you're doing that for a higher good because <laughs> there are all kinds of leaders as you know. But I think, I don't think most people are very good at, at emotional fitness. Mm. Most people are just not as happy as they could be. You know, I did one book, Money Master the Game. It's kind of like this. Yes. Where, only and what I did in that case is I interviewed you know 50 of the smartest financial people in the world, yes. Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett, and out of 50 of them, and I, you know again it's in my judgment I could be completely wrong, and I spent a lot of time with them. Some have become really good friends. There's probably four or five that are really happy people. You go, oh well, money makes people unhappy. You know, money it has nothing to do with money. Money makes you more of what you are. It just magnifies. If you're mean, you have more to be mean with. If you're kind, you have more to give. You know, but I think that most people are just they haven't learned to manage what's going inside. Doesn't matter how much abundance they have, they're still unhappy. We've all seen people that, great comedians that have killed themselves. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, beautiful man, traveled the world, killed himself, you know, um, you know, fashion designers that have done it. We've all seen all these different people, Kate Spade. And it's like, what? They had everything, except they didn't master what's going on here and here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is why you lived your life the way you have as, as well. So I think that skill set is the most important one. That's why even in the book, my last two chapters, I think are the most important because it's really about the power of the mind. Because mm. like everybody knows about placebos, right? Mm-hmm. They were only discovered in World War II. And it was discovered by accident. This doctor ran out of morphine and he's treating these, these people that are mm-hmm. badly injured. And you know, you need the morphine not just so they're out of pain, but so they don't go into shock. Mm-hmm. And the actual person who discovered this gets no credit was the nurse, because the nurse handed him a syringe and said, we've got some more morphine. So he believed it, and he said, you'll be out of pain in just less than a minute. He injected them, and in every case, none of them went into shock, 90% of them were out of pain, and they used nothing, it was saline, right? So after World War II, he went back to Harvard, and he was the person that created what we now consider to be the double-bind studies, which are always compared to a placebo, right? And what most people don't know is, the bigger the placebo intervention, the more powerful the mind believes it. Mm. So a small pill is less effective than a big pill. Um, an injection is more powerful than a pill in terms right. of its effectiveness. The most powerful is a, is a sham surgery. Um, the, the Veterans Administration did a study and they did on people doing knee surgeries and they took one third of the people and they just cut them open, anesthetized them, and sewed them back up, did nothing. Mm. A year later, this group, the group that had no surgery, had the least amount of pain, the most amount of flexibility, the most amount of, so they stopped funding those surgeries to give you an idea. But that's how powerful it is. Mm. And so when you, it's even more than Harvard did a study where they took barbiturates, made these big red pills and said, this is an amphetamine, you need to prepare your body because you're gonna speed up. They didn't give them something fake, they gave them an actual drug that slows the body down and the body sped up. So most people don't understand the power of the mind. And so what I try to do is show people, even in this book, here are the things that you can do to take control of your mind. Because if you take care of your body and then you don't take care of your mind and emotions, you're gonna be miserable. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. What sparked that question was something you said. You said that you start your morning by jumping in the cold. That's right. And you never feel like doing it. And you said that, I just say to my body, it's time to go. That's right. And that's what sparked the question because I was like, that's a really interesting skill 
that yes. you've trained yourself to be okay with discomfort. Yes. You're training yourself as your first skill of the day is, yes. I am okay with uncomfortable things. Yes. And I know I can get through them. Yes. And that to me is what sounds like a really important part of emotional fitness. It is, because unless you can push through discomfort, most things that are going to give you the greatest reward require discomfort initially, yeah. right? And the discomfort, it's like, you know, my original teacher, Jim Rohn, used to always say, you know, there's two pains in life, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Mm. He goes, discipline weighs ounces, regret weighs tons, you know? And <laughs> yeah, so well I've, I've trained myself to do that. And then, and then I meditate. Then I always make an acknowledgement call briefly or leave a voicemail for someone just because to spark the day. And then I do the first thing I do is always whatever is the most difficult. Yes. Because then you have momentum for your day. And when you train your brain to do what's difficult first, then emotional fitness just comes naturally. And more importantly, so does achievement. So does your ability to contribute to other people. Because I have 105 companies now to give you an idea. I manage 13 of them directly, you know, ongoingly. And, you know, there are all kinds of different industries from AI to, you know, my resorts in Fiji to sports teams I own. And I mean, it's insane the, the, the dichotomy of them. We're doing $7 billion in business. So I got to do that while I'm being a good dad to five kids and five grandkids, while I'm taking care of my body, while I'm living my normal mission. So if I don't take care of my body and my energy and mm. my mind, mm. I mean, you'd be overwhelmed by all the demands because listen, all I got to do is pick up my phone and you're going to have all kinds of, oh, that's cool. Oh, shit, that's it. Because, you know, what are the chances with thousands of employees on three, four different continents now that somebody's messing up? If messing up is not what I think they should be doing, it's 100%. <laughs> so I'd always be in reaction until mm -hmm. I train my brain to say, no, you know, problems are a sign of life <laughs> and all they are are challenges to be solved. And what makes you a great leader is your ability to solve problems or teach teams to build a culture where they can solve problems. And so it gives me this tremendous creativity and flexibility, but I've got the base of energy to make it work. Yes, yes, exactly. And you've given yourself a permission to say this, this matters first it before we get lost in the 7 be. billion and yeah. 105 companies yeah. and all of that. Yeah. And I think that permission is often the toughest part. Yeah. But, but one of the things that stood out to me was I sat down and this was a really beautiful answer that I want to share with you because I think it will spark where I want to go next. I interview a lot of Navy SEALs and I like sitting yes. down with people who've had extreme experiences Me because too. I feel that extreme experiences have opened up different parts of the brain, different parts of the body that we've yep. never had. And the spirit. And the spirit too, yep. exactly. Yep. And one of the people I sat down with was Jocko Willink. Yes, I love and, him. You know, he's been a leader for 25 years yep. and yep. Um, um, incredible Navy SEAL, highly accomplished. And I asked him, and we were on Zoom, right? This was during the pandemic. So I didn't oh, yeah. even get to have this yeah. with him. Yeah. And that's why I'm so grateful for this. Me too. I sat with him and I said to him, I said, you've done everything that's difficult and uncomfortable, potentially known to human beings yeah. in, in your field. What's the most difficult thing you've ever done? Mm. And I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. And I never do. I try not to project or predict what I think someone's going to say. And he said to me, he said, the most difficult thing that I've been through is watching a fellow trooper go down next to me yeah. and having to carry on the mission yeah. without getting the moment to save, yeah. to mourn, yeah. to hold, to carry. He goes, I just have to continue the mission. Yeah. And that was just an answer that, you know, he could have said, oh, it was like standing in the cold water. It was doing this, it was doing that. And so I wanted to ask you, what was the most difficult thing when you know all this and you've seen someone's pain and either they weren't willing to apply it, you saw them too late. Has there been someone in your life that you're like, I had all these tools to help them mm. with, but they weren't ready to receive or that it wasn't 
accessible at that time for them? Has there been that? Or, or have you found that you've always found a way to get through? And not even you personally, I mean, yeah. in your personal life too. Yeah. I first of all, identify, I agree with what Jacques told you, which is, um, you know, dealing with the loss of someone you care about is probably the most difficult thing of all. I would say maybe uh, as a child, seeing the level of frustration between my parents, you know, I had four different fathers and watching them kind of, um, you know, accept whatever life gave them as a, it's, it's why a lot of my drive came about is seeing my fathers be berated by my mother, who I love dearly, um, and just watching them break down. Like, you know, I, the, probably the single most painful event of my life, but also shaped me in such a beautiful way was when I was 11 years old, we had no money for food and it was Thanksgiving, which in America is a you know, big holiday feast. Mm -hmm. And so we'd been without food before, we'd have crackers and butter and you know, we survived, but we weren't gonna have a Thanksgiving feast. And there was a knock at the door and I go to the door and there's this giant guy there with groceries in each hand and he had a pot beside him on the ground with an uncooked turkey. And I, I just like, I said, uh, who are you here for? He goes, I'd like to speak to your father. And my mom and dad were yelling at each other, saying things that you can never take back. And I'm trying to make sure my younger brother and sister, they're five and seven years younger, wouldn't hear any of this. And that day changed my life because I thought it was gonna be the most exciting day Dad, Dad, go to the front. What is it? I said, it's for you. You answered. No, it's for you. And I remember we opened the door and I was just so excited to see my father be happy. Like, we're going to have a feast. This is going to be incredible. And he got angry. And he's like, we don't accept charity. He went to slam the door in the man's face. And the man's foot was there, so it bounced off his foot. He still opened the groceries. And he's like, sir, I'm just the delivery guy. He said, it's, it's not charity. Everybody has a tough time. Someone bought this and they're sending it to you as a gift. My father said, we don't take charity. He goes to close the door again. This time the guy's shoulder was there also, so it bounced off again. And then I was standing right there and there was this moment I'll never forget where the, this man <laughs> looked at my father and he looked at me and he said, sir, don't let your ego make your family uh, uh, suffer. And the veins on my dad's face on, on the side of his neck, I'll never forget, they bulge, like his face turned red. I thought I was gonna punch him in the face. And then there's this moment, my dad's shoulders dropped he took the groceries, slammed the door, didn't say thank you, and stormed off. And I always remember thinking, like, how come he's not happy? You know, you talk about pain. It's like, I love my father so much. And he, he there's basically three decisions that I think everybody makes in their life, that whether they're aware of it or not, moment to moment. I figured this out afterwards because I was so obsessed with what's wrong because he eventually left our family. And that was the most painful thing I ever have. So it's like feeling like I failed, you know, I blame myself, like why couldn't I get through to my father? You know, I was 11 years old. But later on, it helped me understand the three decisions are first, you gotta decide what to focus on. Every moment of your life, there's something grabbing your focus and you don't experience life, you experience the part of life you focus on, right? What's wrong is always available, so is what's right, right? And there are different kinds of focus. And my dad's focus that day was really on what he hadn't done. And I know that because he kept muttering it you know, I hadn't taken care of his family. There's no funny for Thanksgiving. Somebody had to give us charity. And then the second decision you make about once you focus on something is what does it mean? Is this the end or the beginning? If you think it's the end of a relationship, you're going to behave different than it's the beginning, right? Um, my dad's meaning was that he was worthless. And so then the third decision is what do I do, which whatever meaning you come up with creates the emotions, which affects what you do. And what he decided to do is leave our family. But for me, it was like, this is amazing. I mean, you know, we haven't having Thanksgiving. You know, this is a, this is incredible. We got food. What a concept! And then the meaning, though, is what changed my whole life, which was, wow, strangers care. That completely changed my life. That painful experience, I couldn't deny that somebody who wanted no credit 
deliver this food to my family. And so what I decided to do is say, someday I'm going to do this for another family. So when I was 17, I had two families and it was a euphoric experience. I went in jeans and a t-shirt. I didn't go like the delivery guy, but I wanted to see the face of the people. And then next year was four people. And then it was eight. And I literally, my thing was doubling. And I had a little company. And then I got to a million people a year. And I got to four million people a year. Then when I was doing Money Master the Game, I'm interviewing these billionaires, Jay. And I'm watching Congress cut food stamps. It's now called the SNAP program by, I think it was $6 billion. So every family that actually needs food, and my family was one of those back then, they all have to come up with a week's worth of food out of every month. So I was like, I called my team and I said, how many people have I fed in my lifetime? I didn't know that it was 42 million meals. I was like, that's pretty cool. And I was like, what if I fed 50 million people, like my entire lifetime in one year? And then I was like, what if I did 100 million? What if I fed a billion people in 10 years? So that was seven years ago. Wow. We're at 850 million meals, That's right? Amazing. And I'm gonna hit the billion earlier than what my promised and targeted. And then I've got a sustainable approach. But I tell you that because my worst day was my best day. Mm -hmm. my, the most painful day, the day where I felt like I'd do the least, where I felt impotent, led me to have new understandings, new skills, new capacities, new drives, new hunger. I mean, would I really be feeding 100 million people a year 100 million meals a year if I was well-fed as a child? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to believe I'm such a perfect person, but no, I'm just, <laughs> I just know what suffering feels like, yeah. so I don't want anybody else to suffer, you know? Yeah. So I think sometimes the suffering experiences of our life, if we don't let them crush us, we let them drive us, they, they actually become the best day in your life. And yeah. taking your worst day and making your best day is a beautiful target for anybody. That, that is just, it's magical even hearing it. Because it's magical experience it's, again. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it yeah, changed my life. Yeah, exactly. I can know? only imagine, like, just hearing yeah. it, I'm just, you know, it's such a beautiful visual. So to live it is just, you know, on the other end of that. Thank you for sharing that so oh, much. It's, it's such thank a, it, it's so profound and so wonderful with the, with the it, question that I you see. It's where you see there's grace in life, too. It's yeah. like, if you can, like, I used to think in the early days, because my mom was beautiful. She was the most influential person in my life. And yet she also, when she drank alcohol and took yeah. um, you know, prescription medication, she got crazy. Yeah. So she smashed my head against the wall to my bladder, feed, feed me liquid soap. And I never told anybody about this when she's alive, but I have this group of young kids that I could see a tall white guy who seems to be quite successful. You know, what does he know? So I told him the whole story. But out of all that, it's like if my mom had been the mother I wanted her to be, yeah. I'd probably not be the man I'm proud to be. Yes. Like I, I had to grow, I had to become a, practical psychologist at 11 to manage her so that my brother and sister weren't messed up. And it's like, there's grace in everything. And yeah. it's, I, always, I always think it's like, it's our job to realize the life's happening for us, not to us. Mm -hmm. And to find how it's happening for us, that's our job. If we do that, then we have a magical life. If we don't, but if your energy's low and you're exhausted, <laughs> then you don't, you don't find those empowering meanings. Yeah. You know, that's why to me, you can't separate the mind and the body. Yes. You, yes. Gotta, you gotta feed the mind and strengthen the body. Yeah on a daily basis in some way. And if you do that, life can be pretty miraculous. Yeah, and I did that for too long. I, I can actually relate to that. And it was my wife that turned me onto the body mm. because I was one of those people that focused on the mind and the spirit. Right. And as I shared with you earlier, yes. ignored the body. Yeah. Because I thought, well, I'm young. I've always been healthy. I don't really know what physical health looks like. Yeah. And then my wife is a nutrition, a dietitianist, oh, an ayurvedic awesome. health counselor, counselor. She comes into my life and she's just like, you need to do this, 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 this. You need to change this in your diet. And I'm thinking, why are you asking me to change? But it was so fascinating to me because it's exactly what you just said. Yes. You can't disconnect the two. And going on that, you said focus and mood about your father. Yes. You have a whole section in here dedicated to focus and mood. Yes. Walk us through that because 
what you just explained to us is the emotional focus and mood yes. of your father. Yes. But here you're talking about how the physicality of focus and mood can affect us. They, they, go, they go together. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example how powerful they are for the psychological side. Uh, right now, you know, after, out of COVID, so many people have been shut down in a terrible place. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen that um, drug overdoses are the largest they've ever been in history. Yeah. It was over 100,000 people last year. Suicides. One out of four kids under the age of 30, according to the CDC, whether they're accurate or not, I don't know, have considered suicide sometime in the last two years. Because we all need a compelling future. We need look, something to look forward to. So Stanford came to me, and the, their genetics lab has been doing research on depression. And what they found was that uh, by doing meta-studies, is only 40% of the people who go in for therapy, who they get drugs and therapy together usually, only 40% make any improvement. 60% don't improve at all. That's not a lot more than what you can get on some placebos. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they approached me and said, a couple of people went through one of your programs. One was clinically depressed, they're not anymore, but we don't have any science on this. Would you be willing to let us do a science test? And I said, sure. So they came out to the State with Destiny seminar I do, which helps people to change their values and belief structures. I don't tell them what they need to be, but they figure out what it needs to be. And it changes the way you perceive life, the way you experience life, how you feel, what you do. It's a rewiring of your model of the world, basically, in six days. And so they said, we're gonna model this after the greatest breakthrough they found in science and no one able to follow up on. They, about two years ago, Johns Hopkins did a study on depression. And they gave people psilocybin, right? Which comes from magic mushrooms. And they did therapy for 30 days. And at the end of it, 53% of the people were depression-free 30 days later. Never happened. Like when we say 40% are helped, the average amount of help is 50% less depressed, right? That's what the average is. Some people completely turn around, some people enroll. In this one, 53% of the people, so it was four times the result of any drug that ever been done. But unfortunately, psilocybin's not legal, so they're still working on that. And they said, we're gonna copy that exact study. And we're gonna have a, a group that they compared to, which is, didn't go to the seminar, the comparison group is gonna do gratitude journaling and so forth, because positive psychology talks about that. And they said, that's probably what this seminar does, is just positive thinking. Well, the cool thing was when they came out, the results were so amazing at Stanford that they went and had two new additional double-blind people do the research, because it just seemed so ridiculous. <laughs> at the end of oh, the first week, 63% of people had no, had no uh, depression symptoms. At the end of six weeks, it can increase through time. 100% of the people had no, no depression symptoms. 19% of the people had uh, suicidal ideation. Zero had suicidal ideation. It blows away any study. It just came out, it's coming out next week in the Psychiatric Journal, which is Journal of American Medical Association, Psychiatric Journal are the two top journals in the field. They can't even believe it, so they're gonna do more. And, and the, the actual scientific article says, this is more powerful than any drug therapy or any forms of normal therapy combined. And what are we doing? We're getting people to change basically those three questions to some extent, because your values control what you focus on. If you're security driven and you're here down in my basement right now, you're like, <laughs> where, where's the exit, right? You came down a slide, like how do I get out of here, right? If you're adventure driven, you don't care. You don't even know where it is. So your yeah. focus is controlled by your values and your belief systems, yeah. right? The meaning of things is controlled by your belief systems. So. Those three decision-making things, you know, what I'm gonna focus on, what does it mean, what I'm gonna do, shift. And one good example of this, Jay, is maybe your audience can relate to this, is that we just took three patterns. So let's say focus, most people have a focus either on what they have or what's missing. Mm -hmm. We both, we all do both. Mm -hmm. But what do you think most people focus on more often, what they have or what's missing? What's missing. That's right. Now, even achievers do that. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's not like somebody who's not successful. It's one of the reasons you see these achievers that no matter what they do, it's never enough. Because think about it, if you're always focusing what's missing from your life, how can you sustain happiness? Mm-hmm. It's software that will not allow that. Mm-hmm. You'll feel happy for a little moment and then you'll notice it's missing again. Um, what do you think is more often people focus on what they can control or can't control? What they can't control. Yeah. In my seminars, it's can control. That's why they go. (laughs) (laughs) I want to learn how to take control of my body or my finances or my business, whatever it is. So it's the opposite. But the average person, it's what they can't control. And with COVID, there's so much you can't control around you Mm -hmm. that people really sunk in that. Well, how's someone going to feel? Just everyone think about it. If you're constantly focused on what's missing from your life and what you can't control. And I'll add one more. Do you focus more on the past? the present or the future. We all do all three, but we tend to have one we focus more on. Mm -hmm. Where do you think more people focus? Past. That's right. Mm -hmm. And achievers focus on the future Mm -hmm. and happy people on the present. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that, you know, if you're going to be achiever, the ideal is the present. So you experience it anticipating the future so you can shape your life. Right. But the past you can change. So I ask people in seminars, you got stadium, 15, 20,000 people. And I'll say, how many of you know somebody that takes antidepressants and they're still depressed. And 80% of the room raised their hand saying they know somebody. Wow. Well, how come? Because all antidepressants do is numb you so that you're less intense, but they don't deal with the source of the problem, which is you're constantly seeing what's missing. And it doesn't matter whether you're successful or not. That's why there are these people that have been wealthy and think their own life. They see what's missing. They focus on all the things they can't control. There's plenty we can't control. But there's plenty we can influence and plenty we can't control. And just a couple of changes like that mm. completely change someone's life. And so those changes in the beliefs and values change what they look moment to moment, change their experience of life. They're no longer depressed. Yeah. The biggest thing that I learned from that, apart from all the incredible stuff you said, is I didn't think about security once when we came down the slide. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's either because I trust you a lot and I'm with you. If it was someone else telling me to get down the slide, I don't know if I would have done it. But now, now I'm like going, oh, wait a minute, we're underwater. Like now, now I'm starting to have all yeah, the thoughts. That's, right. uh, that's incredible. That's, yeah, that's, those questions are fascinating to me. And you were saying that the people that come to your seminars are people that are the opposite. And I think the same of the people that listen to this podcast. Sure. They're choosing to listen to this podcast. Because they want to o- take charge. Over just watching a show or right. binge watching another series. They're, they're here trying to take charge of That's that. Right. What kind of assurance can you give them that that mindset is one that they should keep watering? Because I feel that often, and you've probably heard this in your seminars time and time again, people are like, Tony, I'm trying. I read the book. I'm, I'm trying to put it into practice, but I still keep failing or I still yep. keep struggling. Someone who's already on, but feels that failure, that rejection, that, that yeah. pushback, what can keep them going? I think it's understanding there's no replacement for persistence, as simplistic as that is. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, disappointment either destroys you or drives you, mm-hmm. and you have to decide which one it's going to be. If you don't consciously decide, there's always going to be more BS for you to deal with. And I think but that's why I think, you know, when I do my events, the reason I do the... 12 hours a day. It's not because I like talking. It's just that I can tell you something all day long or I can get you to build the muscle. Yes. And the build of the muscle is by experiencing it. I always tell people a yes, belief yes. a belief's a poor substitute for an experience. Like I could have a belief about you, but now I experience you. So I get to know who you are, right? The same thing is true is like you have a belief about China, you have a belief about working out. So I try to give people experiences that are so profound. And then, you know, the, the studies they did, they found people 12 months later, 11 months later, we're still in the middle of COVID, they did my digital seminar and you know, they measured my body like the amount of times I jump, I jump a thousand times in a day and I weigh 282 pounds and I come down four times the body weight. So it's a thousand pounds times a thousand pounds of pressure. I, my lactic acid, if you've ever been with a friend and you're running and you can't talk, 
The point you can't talk is the level four of lactic acid. I'm in an 18 and still speaking. So they decided to do that on my audience and they found an interesting pattern. This is the same group that works with some of the, you know, Super Bowl champions and some of the Stanley Cup champions and so forth. There's a ratio in the body of testosterone versus cortisol, the stress hormone. And when the ratio is balanced, they call it the championship bloodline or bloodstream. It literally gets you to follow through. So when they did my audience in my live seminar, they found that people literally mirror me all the way through the experience. That's phenomenal. Biochemically. That is phenomenal. But then wow. we did it on, we did it, you know, because all of a sudden, they, overnight they said to me, you know, we're going to San Francisco and the governor of California says, you can only have 10 people and we have 15,000. So I was like, we'll go to Vegas. They'll never <laughs> shut down Vegas. They shut down Vegas. I was like, okay, we'll do 1,500 movie theaters with 10 people in them. They shut down the movie theaters. Like, okay, we'll go to a church in Houston. I got a buddy, I'll rent his church for 15,000 people. They're not gonna keep Costco open and shut down the church. They kept Costco open and shut down the <laughs> church. So I finally said, okay, I'm not gonna do some crappy little webinar. So I get this vision, I'm gonna build this facility with 20 foot high LED screens, 50 feet wide all around me. I'm gonna call Eric Yon at Zoom. I'm gonna get them from 1,000 up to 25,000 people so I can interact with people live in real time. I'm gonna build an app so they can shake it. And the more people do it, the louder it gets so it's real. So I built this whole thing. So now we're doing bigger events than ever in our entire history, but they did the same measurements on them in different parts of the world and saw the exact same mirroring process. Wow. And the average person even digitally even just digitally. to clarify that yeah um 71 percent of the they had 71 percent drop in negative emotions 53 percent improvement in positive emotions and 11 months later in the middle of covid it held because it's a biochemical change so when people say oh i'm trying i read that's i write books because it's it's an easy entry point to people and there's so much you can learn from mm -hmm. a book but there's nothing like the experience that's why I do the events. Mm -hmm. And like this last two years, because of COVID, I did two like six day free events. We had 800,000 people attend for six days, just four weeks ago, because I just wanted people to have answers where they are. Mm -hmm. And then people start to see, they get momentum, but it's hard to do just reading something or watching a couple of, you know, you know 20 yeah. minute or 15 minute or five minute little pieces Video. on YouTube. Yeah. Those are great, they might inspire you, but a transformation requires immersion. It's like, yes. if you ask the average person, did you study a foreign language in school? Most people, oh yeah, <laughs> high school, college, speak it, they don't. <laughs> but if you turn around and you said, okay, what if you wanna learn Italian and I just took you to Rome and dumped yeah. you off for six weeks yeah. with no teacher, you're gonna come back six weeks later speaking you know, Italian. Yeah. So it's immersion. Mm -hmm. And if you wanna master something, I think that's the thing most people don't do. Yes. They read a little bit, they listen a little bit, they dip in and out. They don't go day and night, night and day in total immersion in something that transforms them and yeah. also something that makes them push through their fears. Yes. Because in the end, that's the only thing that stops me. Everybody's got a story. I didn't know this person. I don't have the resources. They have all the things they don't have. Mm -hmm. But if you're resourceful, you can get the money, you can get the time, you can get the energy, you can get anything you want. And you've got to get over your fear to be resourceful. So we do experiences that are so physiologically profound mm -hmm. that those fears do not stop you anymore. Yeah. And that's, what, that's how we get people to get, you know, 10 years later, they're still transformed from an experience that was one weekend. The fact that people are mirroring you, that is, that my, you, even you digitally, see it on, on even a through curve, a screen, it's, it's, that is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. And that's through a screen too. Yeah, that but, blew my mind even But more. you know what's really cool about the screens is like, if you're in my seminar, yeah. you're in a giant stadium and I'm a dot. I mean, <laughs> most people watching me on a screen anyway, right? Unless you're in the front rows. And, but you know, I can see your eyes, I can feel what's going on. 
I'm running around the building. Here, I can scan so many people and I see them in their home. I see them with their children. Yeah. I see the interaction with their husband or their wife. I see what they're eating. You know, it's just, it's, it's and I'm with them 12, 13 hours a day yeah. for three or four days. And we start here, for example, at 10 a.m. and we're in 195 countries. So we got one for 25,000 people, March 17th to the 20th here. And we will have people in Australia starting at midnight wow. and going till one in the afternoon the next day for four days. Wow. And people in, in, in Italy are doing it at a different time. So it's like, we literally have the whole world engaged. So yeah. that's been the, the blessing of COVID. It's like I always tell people, you use stress or stress uses you, right? Mm -hmm. I had to figure out how to use COVID mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to serve people and we found the way. But again, none of this happens if you don't have enough energy. Yes. Because your brain will just go, oh man, I've tried everything. Yeah, you walk yourself out <laughs> and of it. Give up. And, I, and I love, the thing I love about immersion and events or retreats is that you actually build friendships. That's like right. the community that's the community built. for sure. The community of that accountability of we're doing this together, we're that's growing right. together, we're building together that there are people who think like me and that's look right. like me. 